our memories and what we remember are precious treasures. A couple of weeks ago, my father and I we were walking through the church uh, and talking, and he drove this point home to me, uh, that our memories and what we remember are precious treasures. My father told me a story about a preacher who had gone blind, and that was a real encouragement for a guy who just got a new pair of glasses. Anyway, uh, he, um, early on, this, this preacher knew that he was beginning to lose his eyesight. And the, the doctors uh, told him that he would eventually go completely blind. And so he wanted to remember as much of the Bible as he could. And to that end, he had his wife start reading the Bible to him and helping him to memorize as much as he could word for word. My, my father told me that one day he was attending a local uh, Baptist convention when the preacher told those in attendance to read the texts in their Bibles as he read. And at one point, the, the preacher stopped. He paused for a moment and said, I, I bet you forgot, I bet you think I forgot what comes next. I didn't forget, he said. I was just stopping to think about what we had read. And it was at that point that my dad realized, this is the preacher that he had, had heard about, who had, had gone blind. Uh, the preacher then told those gathered to keep reading, to keep going uh, in their Bibles. And, and my father told me he, he followed closely along just to see, would he miss a word here or there? And he said it was, it was amazing to hear this uh, brother in Christ recite Scripture word for word. And he recited not just a verse, but a long passage. And my, my father was following along, and he was encouraged by this great brother in Christ. And that dear preacher had stored treasure away in his memory. Our minds can hold trash, as we know, and they can hold treasure. What will our minds hold? I love what the, the great pastor and hymn writer John Newton said as his memory was fading. He said this, he said, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. This morning, as we study Numbers 10, the people of Israel are given a reminder and they are called to remember. And it's my prayer that as we study God's Word this morning, that we would be reminded of the goodness and graciousness of our God. And that we would be strengthened and encouraged to continue to remember His goodness to us. So if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 10, to Numbers 10. If you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the beginning of the passage on page 118. And while you're turning there, allow me to remind you of what we've studied so far in Numbers. Moses likely wrote the book of Numbers toward the end of his life. The events of the book pick up nearly two years after the people of Israel were rescued from slavery in Egypt. And, and, and it follows uh, the people of Israel through a period of at least 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The book itself is broken up into roughly three sections. The first nine chapters or so, first nine or ten chapters or so, reflect Israel's stay at Mount Sinai. The next twelve chapters or so cover Israel's journey through the plains of Moab. 
And roughly the last 15 uh, chapters of the book recount significant events uh, in Moab. Last week we studied Numbers 9. And as we studied Numbers 9, we considered Israel's final preparations before departing Mount Sinai. This week, as we turn to study Numbers 10, we're, we're considering Israel's actual departure from Sinai. In other words, in Numbers 10, the journey through the wilderness begins. They take their first steps. Israel's army has been identified. Israel's priests have been set, as, set aside for service to the Lord. The Lord has called His people to holiness and blessed them. The Lord's tent was dedicated and prepared for service. Israel was instructed to keep the Passover and follow the Lord. The final preparation previous to departure was a call to remember the Lord's saving rescue of them from Egypt and to follow Him. And in Numbers 10, as I said, we actually see the people of Israel follow Him. The story of God bringing His people into His place under His rule, as one Bible teacher put it, this story continues. We're going to study Numbers 10 in three sections under three headings. Number one, remember your God. Remember your God. Number two, remember His plan. Remember His plan. Number three, remember His promises. Remember His promises. And I'll repeat each of those points as we're heading into each new section. So if you, you missed any of those, not to worry. Here comes number one again. Remember your God. Remember your God. And as we think about this first point, read Numbers chapter 10, verses 1 through 10 now. Numbers 10, verses 1 through 10. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets of hammered work. You shall make them. You shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm, the second time the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are to set out. But when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast, but you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpet. The trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings, and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. The people of Israel... They are commanded to make a pair of silver trumpets. Their primary use is to summon the congregation and break camp, which would lead to Israel's departure each time the people of Israel were called to continue on in their journey. There are also several important secondary uses for these trumpets. They'd be used for gathering the chiefs, the leaders of the people of Israel, announcing the departure of each tribe on the journey, a call to war, making feasts, marking feasts and festivals, the beginnings of months and certain offerings. Some of these secondary uses point forward to the hope and confidence that a time was coming where the people of Israel were no longer journeying through the wilderness, 
but settled in the land that God had promised to give them. Whether these trumpets were used for their primary or secondary purposes, each time they were used, they should have been, as verse 10 says there, you'll note, a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. That's what we need to keep in mind as we think about the use of these trumpets. God is at the center of His people, and while these trumpets had very practical uses, they were not to be disconnected from the God who commanded that they be made and used on certain occasions. This happens so often for the people of Israel. God embeds signals of His presence and care and leadership among them. He made Himself a part of their ordinary life and He did it for the purpose of reminding the people of Israel that He was their God. They needed to be reminded because too often they would forget. When the sound of the trumpets reached the ears of the people of Israel, their first thoughts should have been that the Lord, they should have been of the Lord. Yes, through those trumpets, the Lord was calling the people of Israel to walk in the wilderness or worship at the tabernacle or take up arms in war, but it was the Lord who was calling them to those things. It was the God who saved them from slavery in Egypt who was calling them. The sounds of the trumpets were not merely signals for taking up tasks, but reminders that the people of Israel were led by the one and only true God. If we think about these primary and secondary uses uh, in these verses for just a moment, we could see that. The call to go and gather in verses 2 and 3 meant that God was leading His people on, just as He had led them before. The single sound of one trumpet in verse 4 meant that the leaders of God's people needed to gather under His leadership as they met with their mediator, Moses. The sound of the trumpet for each tribe to set out in verses 5 and 6 reveals that each and every tribe was under His command. The trumpets were assigned only to Aaron and the priests in verse 8, revealing that God has an order and ordained authority among His people. Not just any old bloke could blow these trumpets. No, God had entrusted their care and use to Aaron and the priests. Verse 8 makes clear that these trumpets were to be used down through the generations, thus reminding Israel of God's commitment to them from generation to generation, saying, generation after generation, I am the Lord your God. In verse 9, when the trumpets sounded as the people of Israel went to war, the people should remember that the battle belongs to the Lord, and ultimately, He would be their Savior. Obviously, all the occasions in verse 10 are about worship, which is always and only about God. Are these trumpets about practically ordering the life of the people of Israel as they would journey and later live in the promised land? Yes. But they were also about much more. As I mentioned a moment ago, yes, through these trumpets, the Lord would call His people to walk in the wilderness and to worship at the tabernacle, or to take up arms in war, but ultimately they were to be a reminder to the people of Israel that He was their God, and that they belonged to Him. There are important differences between the Old Testament and New Testament people of God, but there are also commonalities as well. The New Testament teaches us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are God's treasured possession. 
in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We belong to Him. In His covenant love, He remembers us. Do we remember Him? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul urges Timothy to remember Jesus Christ. Do we remember that through Christ we have been loved and forgiven? Do we remember as Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 makes clear, that in and through the created world, God's eternal power and divine nature have been made visible to us. Sometimes we need to stop and appreciate how the world we live in calls us to remember God's power and glory. Too often, we live as though God is absent from our lives and from our world. And we need to discipline ourselves to remember Him. Biblical counselor David Pallison once wrote, When you actually remember God, you do not sin. The only way we ever sin is by suppressing God, by forgetting, by tuning out His voice, switching channels, and listening to other voices. When you actually remember, you actually change. In fact, remembering is the first change. When you're tempted, pray. Lord, help me to remember you and your steadfast love. When you are afraid, pray, Lord, help me to remember you and your faithful love. When you are rejoicing, pray, Lord, help me to remember that all good gifts come from your hand. Like the Old Testament people of God, we need to remember our God each and every day of our lives. While God has not given us trumpets to sound, He does call us to remember. Part of the reason that we don't have trumpets anymore is because Christians are not people of one nation gathered around a tent in the wilderness. The people of God are not one nation like Israel. We are people gathered from the nations, plural, nations of the earth. And as a church, we want to reflect that reality. While we should give thanks to God for the freedom we as Christians have in this nation as a church, we want to make it clear that we are not a church of this nation, but a church of the King of the nations. That means that as a church, we need to remember who our God is. He is the God who has redeemed and saved us. And so our ultimate allegiance belongs to Him. He is the God who longs to see His Son worshipped among the peoples of the nations of the world. So we need to remember who our God is. We need to remember that our God is a God who reveals Himself. Which means remembering our God means we must remember what He has revealed and who He has revealed Himself to be. If that's not what we're looking to as we're thinking about how do we remember the Lord and who are we remembering, if we're not remembering the God who has revealed Himself in the Scriptures, we are remembering a God whom we have made in our own image. Remembering our God means we remember who He has revealed Himself to be. And it also means that we remember the plan that He has purposed to accomplish. So let's turn now and consider our second point. Remember His plan. Remember His plan. And as we do, read Numbers chapter uh, 10 verses 11 through 28. Verses 11 through 28. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted 
from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies. And over their company was Nashon, the son of Minadab. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Issachar was Nathanael, the son of Zuar. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helon. And when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who carried the tabernacle, set out. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out by their companies. And over their company was Eliezer, the son of Shadur. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Simeon was Shimeliel, the son of Zurishaddai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Gad was Eliasaph, the son of Duel. Then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy things, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. And the standard of the camp of the people of Ephraim set out by their companies. And over their company was Elishama, the son of Amihud. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Petazur. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Benjamin was Abidan, the son of Gideonai. Then the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as the rear guard of all the camps, set out by their companies. And over their company was Ahiazer, the son of Mishadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Akron. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enon. This was the order of the march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. Now, on a shallow reading of these verses, nothing spectacular takes place in them. But the people of Israel simply set out on a journey in a very orderly manner. They leave Mount Sinai for the wilderness of Paran. They travel tribe by tribe in a manner that they were previously instructed to travel. That would be the shallow reading of these verses. Now, for a moment, let's get honest about our Bible reading again. The truth is, is that we often read in a very shallow manner. We often come to a section of Scripture like this and fail to appreciate its full force. We see difficult names that only the Lord can pronounce correctly, and we want to move through them quickly. We see patterns and repetitions and sometimes think to ourselves, okay, I, I get the point. The people of Israel are moving tribe by tribe. I, I understand, and sometimes myself fall prey to, frankly, a, a lazy and unappreciative reading of the text. But perhaps you're, you're thinking to yourself right now, come on, come on, Mike. I mean, there's really not much to this text. The people of Israel really are just, they're just leaving Mount Sinai and setting out for the wilderness of Paran. To which I would respond, that's exactly my point. The people of Israel, they're leaving Mount Sinai. We need to grasp the importance of this event, this departure. The people that God saved and rescued out of Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, gathered around Mount Sinai, and sustained at the base of that mountain for nearly a year, are now on the move toward the land that God had promised to give them. In Genesis 15, the Lord had promised and planned 
to give the children of Abraham, those who would eventually become the people of Israel, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But that plan took an apparent detour in Egypt. That plan was unfulfilled as they languished in Egypt. The plan of receiving a good land was revived when they left Egypt, but paused again when they came to rest at the base of Mount Sinai. We need to recognize in these apparently monotonous verses that the story of God bringing His people into His place under His rule is on the move again. In the movement of the people of Israel, we should receive a fresh encouragement that God will indeed keep His promises and carry out His plan to Abraham to give His people the promised land of Canaan. It's true they are not home yet. True they have only taken their first steps on the journey, but they are taking their steps toward the promised land because God is leading them on. That's why this section begins in verse 11 by explicitly mentioning the fact that the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle the testimony. That's a huge signal that God is on the move and therefore His people are to be on the move too. If you remember from our, our study last week of Numbers 9, we saw that the command to leave Sinai, that when the cloud lifted, that the people were to move as well. That command was restated in as many ways as humanly possible. And now, the cloud has lifted and God is on the move. Read, read verse 13 again. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. The people of Israel, they obeyed the Lord through Moses. They obeyed God's command to leave and they left in the order that God commanded in Numbers chapter 2. Precisely obeying God's commands for leaving in order tribe by tribe at the proper time was really important. Let's, let's remember that the people of Israel at this time number somewhere between two and two and a half million people. There needed to be some order to this expedition. Our God is a God of order and He has provided that order for His people. And this is incredibly practical and loving of our God to give these crisp, clear, and careful instructions to His people. And it was wise of the people of Israel to follow them. Now when we studied Numbers chapter 2, we noticed how God's tent was at the center of Israel's camp. And that the purpose of having His tent in the center of Israel's camp was to powerfully express that He dwelt in their midst. He was their center of their life, the life of the nation. And when the march begins, his, his tent also takes a central role. His tent and most of the furnishings that belong to it are basically in the central position of the line of the people of Israel as they make their way through the wilderness toward the promised land. With the people of Israel setting out and moving through the wilderness, we can see that the plan of God to give His people a good land is moving along. We need to remember that our good God has a good plan and that He is bringing His purposes to pass. I think that part of the reason that God has given us so much history in the Old Testament is to teach us that His plan takes twists and turns and that sometimes it takes a long time. But that it's always progressing. He's never absent from His plan and He's never 
not carrying out his plan. There were low points and there were high points in God's plan, but it was always progressing and moving forward to reveal that God would save sinners like us through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to survive in this world, survive the, the twists and turns of life, survive the discouragements and disappointments, if we are going to survive the wilderness of this world and make it safely home to the promised land of heaven, then we must believe, trust, and remember that God has a good and gracious plan. In the words of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That is God's plan. To bring His people, to bring you and me into that city. Christian, if you are feeling increasingly like a stranger and exile on this earth, then I think you are probably feeling what the Lord wants you to feel. We are not home yet. And we shouldn't feel as though we are. God has a better plan than this country. He has a heavenly country. Part of the reason that Christians feel so defeated these days is that they have forgotten that this world is not our home. And as I said, God has a better plan than this country. Better plan than every other country on this earth. He has a plan for a heavenly country. And this is what the book of Hebrews said that Abraham and Sarah were seeking. Abraham and Sarah were seeking a better country. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, we're told that they desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one. If Abraham and Sarah desired a heavenly country and did not know Jesus Christ as we do, then how much more ought we to desire that heavenly country? Christian, do you know how you are going to make it through the wilderness of this world? You are going to make it through in part by remembering that God has a plan for His people, a plan that is one with His plan for the world. God's plan to bring the people of Israel through the wilderness and into the promised land of Canaan was but a foreshadow of His plan to bring His people home to the promised land of heaven. Canaan was a foreshadow of heavenly glory. Israel faced difficulty in the desert and we will face difficulty in this world too. Jesus told us that. And so we shouldn't be surprised by it. Israel also made it home. And we will too. Because our good God has a good plan that He is fulfilling even now. Even as we have seen the plan of, of God progress, progress in Numbers 10, Moses teaches us that we can trust the promises of God as we go. We should not only remember our God and remember His plan, but we should also remember His promises. This is what we turn to consider now in our third and final point. Remember His promises. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 10, verses 29 to 36. Numbers chapter 10, verses 29 to 36. And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us. 
and we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. And he said, Please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day, whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered before you, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Now these verses, they contain several interesting features. Verse 29 is, is interesting and challenging for several reasons. First, first challenge, who, who is Hobab? We're told that he was Moses' father-in-law. But we know that Jethro was Moses' father-in-law. Frankly, commentators are rather split on, on who he is. Some view Hobab as another name for Jethro. Others uh, think that perhaps he's actually Moses' brother-in-law due to some of the ambiguity there in the verse. The truth is, is we don't need to have a crisp and clear-cut conclusion on who Hobab is in order to understand why he's included in this text. We know that he's a Midianite. In other words, he was a, a foreigner or sojourner among the people of Israel. We also know that he must have known the wilderness fairly well, for Moses wanted him to go along with the people of Israel so he could help the people of Israel know where they should camp in the wilderness and serve as eyes. The fact that uh, Moses is calling Hobab to give them guidance on their journey is interesting because we've been told in the preceding section that the, the cloud lifted from Mount Sinai and started to show the people of Israel the way. God was leading his people. So why was Moses asking Hobab to serve as a guide? It's actually quite simple. Ordinary means are not incompatible with divine ways. Hobab's help would not be a contradiction of God's leadership of his people, but a complement to it. God had sovereignly provided a relationship between Moses and Hobab, and Moses saw Hobab's knowledge of the wilderness as a gift from God to aid in the journey through it. Moses was right to view Hobab as a gift. We need to recognize that God has placed people in our lives to help us navigate the wilderness. Children, youth, young adults. You might not like the sound of this, about what I'm going to say, uh, but it's true. God has placed you in your home with the parents you have to help you navigate the wilderness of this world. It would be foolish of you not to pursue them for wisdom. To ask them questions about things you're concerned or uncertain about. Your parents are an incredibly valuable resource that God has given to you. And as much as you need to pursue them, they need to pursue you. You especially need to seek their wisdom about Jesus Christ. Ask them how they have learned from others who have followed Jesus. Ask them how those who have come into their lives and given them encouragement, 
have helped them to make their way through the wilderness of this world. What Hobabs, what a name too, what Hobabs has God placed in their lives and used in their lives to help them follow the Lord? That would be a great question to ask your parents this afternoon or this evening. Now we're not told whether uh, Hobab agrees to go with Moses and the people of Israel. He doesn't quite answer Moses' petition or at least the text doesn't give us his answer. Again, I think that's okay. For, for I think that he, uh, that he is, is, is not the uh, a center of the attention of the text. I think that God is the central figure in this narrative. What happens immediately after Hobab does not answer Moses' petition in verse 32? What happens in verse 33? We're told that the Lord is leading his people. That he's gone ahead to find them a resting place. He can be their eyes in the wilderness. He's happy to do that. I think that this conversation between Moses and Hobab is meant to tell us several things about the Lord. First, consider how fully persuaded Moses is of God's promises. He says to Hobab in verse 29, Come with us. Come with us and we will do good to you. For the Lord has promised good to Israel. Moses is so persuaded of God's promises and his faithfulness to them that he invites Hobab to join the people of Israel and experience the good that God has promised to do to his people. Hobab refuses. But what does Moses do? He persists. Pleasantly persisting. Moses endeavors to persuade Hobab. He invites him again. He, he reassures Hobab of the certainty of God's promise and his share in them if he would but join the people of Israel and follow the Lord's leading. Brothers and sisters, we can learn from Moses the evangelist, can't we? We can and should hold out the promises of God to our friends and family members who don't know the Lord. We can tell them that in Jesus Christ, God has promised to save. To forgive us of our sins and bring us home to heaven. If you are persuaded of these promises, and if you are a Christian, you are persuaded of these promises, then hold out these promises with confidence and joy, just as Moses did. Moses almost seems elated at the thought of God's promises of doing good to his people. And let's be pleasantly persistent in holding out the promises of God. We've got good news to share. We should not be ashamed of it. With joy, we should say, please, come with us. Come with us. These promises are true and real and sure. The God of heaven has guaranteed them by the death and resurrection of His one and only most beloved Son. We should hold out these promises with joy and hope. And friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then this is exactly what we want for you. We want you to come to know and believe in the promises of God concerning salvation in Jesus Christ. We want you to come and know and experience the good that God has done for His people in and through His Son. We want you to join us on the journey home to the promised land of heaven. 
For the Lord, He has promised to do good to us. And He will do good to you if you come to His Son in faith. And you can come to know and experience the goodness of God by confessing what every Christian confesses. That we have sinned and rebelled against God. The church and Christianity is only for sinners. It is only for people who will confess publicly and privately that we are not perfect and that we have sinned. Just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have attempted to live our own way rather than God's way. We have attempted to be our own rulers and carry out our own plans and lead our own way, but we have failed. In our attempts to rule our lives, we have ruined them with our sin. And what is worse is that our sin is a swipe at God's glory and His rule. He is the author of our lives and therefore He has the authority over them. He has the right to rule us. But our rebellion against His rule justly incurs His righteous wrath against our sin. And because of our sin and rebellion against the infinite and eternal God, we rightly deserve to face and endure His infinite and eternal wrath against our sin forever in hell. But the good news is that God has promised to do good to us because of His Son, Jesus Christ. God the Father, He sent His one and only Son. In Jesus Christ, God took on flesh. God dwelt among us as Jesus. He was one who was fully man and fully God. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He was completely without sin. And yet He died on the cross taking the punishment that was due to the sins of all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And three days after His death, God raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave, just as He said He would. And now, the risen Lord Jesus calls us to turn from our sin and to place our faith in Him. God promises good to those who put their faith in His Son. In God's word, we are promised that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are promised that we will be welcomed into heaven because of His Son, Jesus Christ. Friend, I urge you to cling to these promises of God today. I urge you to cling to the one in whom these promises find their certainty, Jesus Christ. Come and join the people of God, for He has promised good to us. And if you want to know more about what it means to come to Jesus Christ in faith and to join His people on their march home to the promised land of heaven, and please do talk with a friend or family member you came with this morning. Talk with me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news that God has promised to do good to His people. We're remembering that the Lord has promised to do good to us has been a great encouragement to me uh, this past week. And so has what we read in verse 33. There we learn that the Lord was seeking out a resting place for His people. While the most holy things remained in the middle of the people of Israel, as they set out into the wilderness, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord did not. It went ahead, leading the way for the people as they followed the cloud. God was seeking a resting place for His people, being their eyes 
knowing what was ahead for them. What a comfort to us. As he looks ahead, he knows what's in our tomorrow and the next day and the years to come should he give us life and breath. He is seeking a resting place for us. The Ark of the Covenant went ahead. And the Ark of the Covenant, as you may recall, it, uh, it represented the Lord's earthly footstool. It was an undeniable symbol of His presence that the Lord is seeking out a resting place for His people in the wilderness as they journey reveals His fatherly care for them. But it also reveals more. The Lord had actually promised to give the people a resting place in the promised land of Canaan. That's the language we see so often throughout the Pentateuch that He's going to make the promised land a place of rest. This seeking out a resting place for His people was a signal that He will one day bring them into the rest of Canaan. Even when the people of Israel weren't resting, we know from verse 34 that the Lord was with them. So they could rest in Him and trust in the promise of His good and gracious care for them. Verses 35 and 36, they recount two brief prayers that Moses offered to God throughout the course of Israel's journey in the wilderness when they would start and stop. When the cloud lifted and thus the ark set out, Moses would pray, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate, hate you flee before you. This prayer actually harkens back to uh, a promise that the God had made to His people in Exodus 23, verse 27, where we read, The Lord saying to His people, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all people who shall come against you. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Moses, he was praying God's word back to him. That promise was particularly aimed at what the Lord would do when Israel arrived in the promised land. But we can see here in Numbers 10 that, that what Moses was praying for is God's protective presence with his people as they journey. They still had enemies out in the open spaces of the desert. They were an easy target there. So this was an appropriate prayer for Moses and for all of the people of Israel. And while they looked to the Lord to lead them through the wilderness, they were also looking to Him for divine protection. Moses' prayerful petition for protection is followed by a prayerful petition of the Lord's presence when the cloud comes to rest and Israel makes camp as they stop on their journey. This prayer is also a wonderful reminder of God's promises to make Israel into a great nation. Moses prays the Lord return to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And that was a wonderful reminder that he was with the nation that he made great, that he promised to make great when he promised Abraham that he would make him a father of many children. And while it was a prayer, it was also a reminder that God had kept his promises to his people. And we should conclude thinking about our God, His plan, and His promises. And we began by considering the truth that our memories are precious treasures. And in Numbers 10, we have seen, we've seen that in and through the sounds of the, the two silver trumpets that God gave His people as a reminder that He was their God. He wanted them to remember that they belonged to Him as His treasured possession. And the people of Israel setting out from Sinai toward Canaan were reminded that God has a plan to bring His people into their good land. And in Moses' invitation to Hobab, we're reminded 
that the promises of God are trustworthy and true. May we always remember our God, His plan and promises. May we always remember that they are centered in Jesus Christ and achieved and accomplished by Him. Let's pray together.